All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series, produced in partnership with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening and welcome to Landmark Cases. Tonight, Plessy versus Ferguson. This 1896 case uh, established the concept of separate but equal that enabled Jim Crow segregation laws to flourish legally in this country for the next five decades after the decision. Uh, it didn't change in the United States until the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision in the Supreme Court and the Civil and Voting Rights Acts of the 1960s. Six decades before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on an Alabama bus, Homer Plessy took a seat in a whites-only railroad car in New Orleans, Louisiana. And we're going to start our story tonight there. We're going to introduce you to Keith Plessy, who is a descendant of Homer Plessy, and he'll set the stage for us and our court case. This is the location of the East Louisiana Railroad. In 1892, on June 7th, Homer Plessy approached the train depot over here at Press and Charters and purchased a ticket to board the East Louisiana Railroad car, which was mandated that separate cars be established for blacks and whites. One block away, he was arrested at Press and Royal Streets. This was not a random act of civil disobedience. It was a well-thought-out plan crafted by the Citizens Committee a multiracial group of citizens here in New Orleans made up of 18 lawyers, prominent citizens who were totally against the segregation laws established by the Louisiana legislature in 1890. The conductor and the arresting officer, C.C. Kane, already knew that Homer Plessy was, was going to be riding the train that day. They were part of the plan organized by the Citizens Committee. The East Louisiana Railroad did not agree with segregation. His case started as a local case here in New Orleans to fight against Louisiana's separate car law. Eventually, it was moved to the state level and eventually to be known as the infamous landmark Plessy versus Ferguson case of 1896. That's Keith Ferguson, a uh, excuse me, Keith Plessy, who is a descendant of the uh, defendant in this case, and we're going to learn more about his story as this unfolds. Let me introduce you to the two uh, guests who are at our table tonight. They'll be with us for the next 90 minutes to help us understand this case, American history at the time, and its implications for our society. Ted Shaw is the director of the University of North Carolina's School of Law's Center for Civil Rights. Uh, in a prior part of his career, he was a former director counsel and also the president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Did that from 2004 to 2008. Uh, the Legal Defense Fund was founded by Thurgood Marshall. Welcome to our program. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Mike Klarman teaches at Harvard University Law. He is a constitutional 
historian, legal scholar, and the author of a book called From Jim Crow to Civil Rights, The Supreme Court and the Struggle for Racial Equality. Earlier in his legal career, he clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she served on the U.S. Court of Appeals. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, we always ask the question, uh, how did this become a landmark case? Most of the high school students who are watching tonight have this in their high school curriculum. How did it get there? Well, it got there because, uh, as uh, Keith Plessy uh, said in the video, uh, this was a planned test case. And uh, I think one of the things that is worth pointing out is that this case was decided in 1896. Uh, and this was the kind of final straw when it came to uh, the end of the Reconstruction era. But it also is important to point out something that most people never heard of. Uh, that is to say, a year before the Supreme Court decided Plessy, there was a conference in Atlanta, the Atlanta Exposition. And Booker T. Washington, the most famous African-American in the country at that time, spoke uh, at that convention, the only African-American, I think, to speak there. And he offered a compromise. It was the call the Atlanta Compromise, which he was essentially saying to black people in the South, don't challenge white people for political power. Uh, don't try to, uh, to run for office. Uh, don't try to desegregate schools and other institutions. Cast down your buckets where you are, he told them. Uh, do industrial work, uh, et cetera. Uh, that's something that made a lot of white Southerners feel comfortable. But essentially, he was saying to white Southerners that uh, uh, black people should do exactly what the Supreme Court suggested should happen a year later. I don't have any evidence that the Supreme Court uh, was aware of what Booker T. Washington said, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were. And so this was an era uh, in which uh, the Jim Crow laws uh, came into being, um, but it was also because of the necessity of challenging segregation laws that were already in place. Mike Clarman, this is a 14th Amendment test. What provisions of the 14th Amendment were, were the questions central to this case? Uh, Plessy is arguing that this is, violates the Equal Protection Clause. He's also arguing it violates the 13th Amendment. So he's arguing segregation is a badge or incident of slavery, but he's also arguing that the government ought not to be making any laws that contain racial distinctions, and for the government to do so violates the Equal Protection Clause. These are the key dates in uh, the, this case as it unfolds legally. First of all, Louisiana passed its Separate Car Act in 1890. It took two years before Homer Plessy's arrest, 1892, and his loss in Louisiana State Court, and then it took until 1896 for Plessy's appeal to reach the Supreme Court, and the case was decided just a month after it was heard. We're going to learn more about the history that unfolded around all of those events. Uh, but uh, the Louisiana Law 1890, uh, so Louisiana wasn't the first state to have a separate railroad car. What was happening in the South that these, these uh, railroad car laws were beginning to be passed? Um, historians disagree a little bit about how integrated the railroads were before southern states started to mandate segregation. So I think there's some evidence to believe that you had less and less integration over time 
even before southern states began passing these laws. Florida was the first one in 1887. Then most of the rest of the South followed. There was a gap in time. And then the eastern seaboard states in the South followed beginning around 1898. Um, but I think most historians think that already um, Southern life was becoming more segregated. It was becoming more dangerous for African-Americans to try to mix with whites. Um, it also made a difference. The Uni United States Supreme Court in 1883 had struck down the federal public accommodations law, and that opened up room for Southern states to pass these segregation statutes. It probably also mattered that a Democrat finally won control of the White House again in 1884. Uh, you had a Democratic administration. This is an era when the Democratic Party was very much not the party of civil rights. The Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, was the party that was most protective of civil rights. So now you had a government in Washington, D.C. that wasn't interested in enforcing civil rights anymore, and that sort of opened the way for Southern states to try to reassert themselves by insisting on segregation. It's so worth one, pointing one, out. One second before we do that, I want to put the text of the law on the screen so yeah. you can talk a little bit more. Just here's one provision of it. This was the 1890 Louisiana Separate Car Act. Be it enacted by the General Assembly of the State of Louisiana that all railway companies carrying passengers in their coasters in this state shall provide equal but separate accommodations for the white and colored races. You wanted to make a point about this law. Well, I was, I was going to point out uh, that this was not the first time Louisiana was engaged with the question of whether it was legal to segregate uh, people who were uh, using transportation. I think it was 1878, but there was a case called Hall versus the Queer, uh, in which a black woman was taking a steamboat down the Mississippi River uh, to get to her. She was well off. She was getting, trying to get to her plantation she owned. And um, she was ejected from her cabin, first-class cabin, as a consequence of being African-American. And so that challenge actually went to court. Uh, and it turned ultimately on a question that was not irrelevant to Plessy. Uh, and it turned on the question of the fact that uh, that steamship uh, started its journey outside of the state. And so uh, as a consequence, interstate commerce, interstate commerce clause governed uh, and uh, if it was interstate, it might have been a different result. Well, you had a similar issue actually in Plessy because Plessy wasn't the first individual to challenge uh, the railroad law that you just put up on the screen. There was another individual, but again, that trip started outside of the state, and so the same result. Um, Plessy's case was totally intrastate. And so it raised the question and only the question of whether or not it was constitutional to, uh, to segregate him in the railroad car under the state law. Mike Carmen, it's really an interesting note that people should understand that the railroad companies didn't like this law either because it was expensive. Right. So in more than one way, they might have to put additional cars on the train and their conductors have to police race relations. And if you made a mistake, you took somebody who you thought was white or somebody you thought was black and you put them in the other car and it turned out that they weren't black and they could sue you. So it could be very expensive for the railroad companies. So after this law was passed, the uh, Committee of Citizens was formed and 
Keith uh, Plessy talked about that. It was an interracial group in, this, in the city of New Orleans, and they hired a lawyer to help guide them through this. And this is one of the things that's wonderful about this series, because this is a gentleman who deserves a place in civil rights history. Albion Tourget is the name I'm talking about, and it's a name unknown to most Americans, I would say. Who is Albion Tourget? Well, Albion Tourget was a, um, a white Union soldier. Uh, he uh, fought in the Civil War and uh, was three times wounded and also, uh, I think, uh, served uh, a period of four months as a prisoner of war. After the war, he came back to the South. He lived in North Carolina. In fact, he was engaged in some kind of uh, tree farming business. Um, but he also was politically active and outspoken because he believed deeply in uh, civil rights and constitutional rights for the, the freed men and women, uh, freed men at the time. And he uh, ran into some problems because of that, and his, his safety was at issue. And so he left, and he went to New York. He lived in upstate New York, uh, and uh, it was there, uh, or from there, that when he heard about the Louisiana law and the challenge, the Plessy challenge, that he wrote an article uh, about it that appeared in a Chicago newspaper, he was then... Uh, contacted by the Citizens Committee uh, because they knew this was a lawyer who had experience and could be helpful. And so he came on board and affiliated himself with the local New Orleans lawyer, a lawyer by the name of Walker, who handled the matter in the, uh, in the New Orleans courts. Um, and that's how he got involved in the case. Uh, so Homer Plessy was a member of the Citizens Committee in New Orleans. How did he become the central figure in this case? Um, Ted, do you want to? Well, after the first case, the case that I uh, mentioned before, uh, failed because of the issue of interstate commerce, uh, the committee needed to come up with someone else. And uh, he actually knew uh, the individual who headed up the committee. And so because of that relationship, he agreed that he would he would be the, uh, the plaintiff in the test case. The other thing that's important to uh, acknowledge is that there was a long history uh, in New Orleans of uh, an African-American uh, upper class, so to speak, uh, relatively speaking, not upper class, but they tended to be light-skinned uh, almost exclusively, um, as Homer Plessy was. This was an individual who could pass for white. That's an important part of the story, an important part of the test. He announced that uh, he was uh, a black man or a Negro or a colored man at the time uh, to the conductor, and that was all prearranged, and it led to his arrest. Um, but that was an essential part of this story and a, of, of this committee. First of all, it had to go through the state courts because it, it, it was really the state law that was being tested. This is where John Ferguson comes into the story. Can you tell us about him? John Ferguson was the judge. Uh, he knew the case was coming also, apparently. But he was the judge um, before whom uh, Homer Plessy uh, was, I guess he was arraigned or something comparable to that. Um, and he originally uh, was from Massachusetts. Uh, and had come south after the Civil War uh, 
uh, and married the daughter of a prominent lawyer, and he became active in state politics, and as a consequence of that activity, ran for the bench and became a judge. And so uh, that's a little bit about him. Is it important to know what his finding was in this case and what, what his legal thinking was? that he uh, upheld state law? Oh, he knew that the, and, and ruled in a way that uh, indicated that Homer Plessy uh, had a tough road to hoe. Um, that, you know, he, the, the law that, that was being challenged um, was going to be upheld. And so he ruled against uh, Homer Plessy. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. We saw in our timeline that it took almost three and a half years for this case to make it to the Supreme Court. Uh, part of that was some um, strategy on the part of Albion Torger, wanting to, uh, the, hoping for a more favorable court. Can you tell us a little bit about what was happening to the court in that era? Um, I don't know specifically why this case was being litigated for so long. It wasn't unusual in the 19th century for cases to take a long time to get to the Supreme Court. I can think of cases in the 1830s that were first argued in 1831, but never got in, decided until after John Marshall had died until 18, uh, 1837. It, it wasn't that unusual for cases to take a long time to percolate. But even today, it's not unusual for it to take a couple of years for something to get to the Supreme Court. But there, there might have been something specific going on. I don't know. Ted, do you know why it took that long? Uh, well, I think you, you're correct when you say that it, it took some time, and, and it's the rule today, and I think it's always been a rule that it takes a while for these cases uh, to get there. Uh, Albion Tourget, however, uh, never, uh, to my knowledge, set foot uh, in uh, the South again, and certainly not in New Orleans during the time the case was being litigated, and the males were notoriously slow. Um, and as a consequence, his litigating the case um, also had a time element uh, that was added. But I don't know if that really explains why it took so long for it to get there. Uh, I also want to mention there was another lawyer, uh, another white lawyer who was engaged in the case, and that was uh, Samuel Phillips. Um, and I have to mention him because I teach at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and uh, Phillips and his family were very much part of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, but he also served as um, the Solicitor General uh, of the United States for quite some time, one of the longest-serving uh, Solicitors General. Um, so he also became persona non grata uh, in the South and, and, you know, and had to move to Washington, D.C., and did, and uh, worked most of his life here in Washington. We're going to talk a little bit about the justices on the court. The chief justice was Melville Fuller. He's one of three Cleveland appointees, along with Edward White, who had been previously a Louisiana senator and later nominated by Taft to be chief justice. Uh, Rufus Peckham, uh, who was nominated by Cleveland in his second term in office. The Harrison appointees were, these are the Republicans, David Brewer, who was a nephew of Justice Field, and he did not participate in the Plessy case. Henry Brown, who ended up writing the majority opinion in this case, and George Sherris, a Harrison appointee. One Lincoln appointee still on the court, Stephen uh, Johnson Field. He had the second longest tenure of any justice on the court, 1863 to 1897. An Arthur appointee sat on the court then, Horace Gray. 
and uh, John Marshall Harlan. We've talked about him in past cases, and he wrote the lone dissent in this case. What else should people know about this court than the, the Fuller court? Well, Harlan is the dissenter and sort of unpredictable as a dissenter, given that he had been a Kentucky slave owner before the Civil War, and he had opposed the 13th Amendment as a congressman from Kentucky. The 13th Amendment is the one abolishing slavery. And then he'd opposed civil rights legislation in, in 1886, 1866 and 1875. So it's a little bit ironic that Harlan is the one dissenter, although it's worth noting that we, we know from other evidence, other opinions that he wrote in extra judicial writings, that even John Harlan would have had no problem with state-mandated segregation of education. He distinguished state-mandated segregation of railroad passengers. Uh, Justice White, so maybe it's worth noting that you know you didn't have a Democratic president all the way from the Civil War until 1884. That's the first time that you could get Southerners on the Supreme Court again. And one of those Southerners is Edward White, who had been a Confederate soldier and had apparently belonged to Klan-like organizations in Louisiana uh, in the years after the Civil War. So um, it took a long time for the South to make a political comeback after the Civil War, but finally they're getting justices and some of them are ones that we wouldn't feel very comfortable with. But even the Chief Justice is a, for, is a Democrat who had opposed Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation during the Civil War, and it actually played a role as a Democrat during the Civil War in segregating Chicago's schools. So some of these justices um, don't have very attractive backgrounds from our perspective. I don't know how much it matters whether they're Democrats or Republicans. The Republican Party was giving up on its commitment to protecting the civil and political rights of Southern blacks. So Justice Brown ought to have been someone who you would expect would be supportive of civil rights. He comes from Massachusetts, the cradle of abolitionism. But even Justice Brown, who writes the opinion, is fine with racial segregation. It was a seven to one decision in May of 1896. As we uh, mentioned, one uh, justice not participating and the one vote sent was Harlan's. Uh, Justice Brown wrote the majority opinion, and here's a bit of what he said. In the nature of things, it could not have been intended to abolish distinctions based upon color or to enforce social as distinguished from political equality or a commingling of the two races upon terms unsatisfactory to either. What are you hearing there, legally? Uh, well, I, I smile for a moment when you read that language that language always sticks out for me. The uh, in the nature of things, um, you know, it's loaded, but it also reminds me of another case most Americans don't know about involving women: Bradwell versus Illinois, uh, and the question of whether or not uh, a woman could be a member of the Illinois bar, uh, and the court ruled that she couldn't be. But there's also that phrase in that opinion: in the nature of things. Um, so the assumptions about uh, African Americans and uh, Plessy and women and Bradwell um, were loaded uh, assumptions that reflected the bias uh, of the, that was the rule and not the exception of the time. Uh, but the the uh, language um, in the dissent about color blindness um, has had such power, uh, staying power, that many people believe that it is, uh, you know, it, it has the force of law. Um, and, uh, you know, we should talk about that 
language. The idea of the colorblind constitution um, is very appearing, is appealing. It's a very eloquent, um, uh, you know, it's very eloquent language. Uh, but uh, the Supreme Court has never ruled um, that the Constitution requires um, colorblindness in all respects, uh, although many people act as if it, it does, including some of the justices on the Supreme Court. So we should, we should have a little bit more discussion on that, perhaps. Here's exactly what he wrote. Our Constitution is colorblind. This is Justice John Marshall Harlan in his dissent. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. On that phrase, we should note that it was actually Albion Tourget in his argument who used the colorblind phrase, and Justice yeah. Harlan picked it up in the dissent. Can you talk about that? Uh, Albion Tourget is a lot more committed to a strong form of racial equality than Justice Harlan is. I think it's important to emphasize all of these justices are likely supportive of white supremacy in some form. Harlan was a slave owner. He's an, opposant, he's an opponent of emancipating slaves in the 13th Amendment. He's an opponent of civil rights legislation. He does, as Seth points out, he does say racist things in his opinion. He believes that all men have race pride. He believes that the white race will continue to exert its supremacy, but that it's a mistake to use law to accomplish that through segregation. And he says some extremely racist things about Chinese, uh, Chinese Americans as well. Um, it's just a mistake to think in 1896 that there are any neo-abolitionists on the Supreme Court. They, don't, they think interracial marriage is a bad thing. Most of them don't believe African Americans ought to be voting. They don't believe they should be serving on juries. The President of the United States is declaring sectional reconciliation, which is achieved at the cost of the rights of Southern blacks. Teddy Roosevelt, a few years later, is going to talk about the importance of race purity being maintained. This is what most white Americans believed, and the justices are a reflection, reflection of that. After losing his challenge in the Supreme Court, Homer Plessy went back to his life in New Orleans. He paid his $25 fine uh, for breaking the law. Uh, he spent the rest of his life pretty quiet, normal life, selling life insurance, and died uh, in his 60s and is uh, buried in New Orleans. So. This did not become the centerpiece of his life for the rest of time. At the beginning of our program, you met uh, Keith Plessy, a, a descendant of Homer Plessy, the defendant in this case. On the phone with right, us right now is a descendant of the judge, uh, Judge Ferguson. Her name is Phoebe Ferguson, and she joins us from New Orleans, where today she is the executive director of the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation, an interesting kind of coming together of two characters in our history. Phoebe Ferguson, how uh, long were you aware of your ancestors' role in this important case? Was it something you grew up knowing about? Um, good evening. Um, actually, no. Uh, we were unaware of our connection to um, Judge Ferguson and only became aware of it um, in about 2002 when a gentleman had bought his former home here in New Orleans and wanted to restore it to its original um, Martha's Vineyard um, uh, architecture. And so he called, he finally found my number apparently after 10 years of looking and um, you know, he said, I bought your great great grandfather's house, uh, you know, the judge in Plessy versus Ferguson. And um, so I, I happened to have a, a family tree that 
had been given to me, and I quickly took it out. I looked down, and there it was. And uh, that was the beginning. How did you go from that surprise revelation to meeting Keith Plessy? Well, um, you know, I began to search and research and look up things and quickly found that um, um, a book had recently been written by a local historian here, Keith Weldon Medley, and the book was entitled We as Free Men, Plessy versus Ferguson, The Fight Against Legal Segregation. And um, in that book, he had written an entire chapter about Judge Ferguson, which was very unusual um, for anyone to actually research who he was. Of course, the book is um, about all the characters uh, in detail, who all the Citizens Committee members were, who Homer Plessy was, who Judge Ferguson was. And uh, so he had met Keith already, and when I called him, he just you know, fell off his chair. He had both of us now, and he set up a surprise meeting. And so I came to New Orleans. I was in New York at the time. He came to New Orleans and met Keith, and I introduced myself, and he introduced himself. And as Keith likes to tell the story, I just started apologizing not only for my ancestors' role in the case, but for slavery and pretty much all racial injustices thereafter. And um, Keith just laughed, and he said, it's no longer Plessy versus Ferguson. It's Plessy and Ferguson. And we've pretty much been friends ever since. So what is the work of the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation? What do you do? Well, um, so we, we teach the history of the case and, you know, why it's still relevant in today's world. Um, we go to schools and teach the case to, to young kids, as young as second grade and, and up to university level. Um, we, uh, we have uh, a day every year where we honor Homer Plessy, which was the day, June 7th, that he was arrested in 1892. And um, we put up historic markers in places of African-American resistance and achievement here in the city of New Orleans uh, because, as is the case with Homer Plessy, or was the case with Homer Plessy, there was no marker to... Um, to show what happened on that site and who, who, you know, who the players were and how that story unfolded. And that New Orleans was, in fact, we like to think of the cradle of civil rights. Um, so we not only honor Homer Plessy, but we also honor the other civil rights activists um, in the city of New Orleans. And hopefully we will expand to the rest of Louisiana and maybe the nation. Well, thank you very much for being part of our program tonight. Um, and it's a, a nice coming together uh, on this interesting chapter in American history. Uh, and we, uh, I think it's probably interesting for all of us to uh, hear your story and to uh, meet you by phone, uh, descendants of Judge Ferguson, in this case, and Keith, Keith Plessy. So thank you for adding to our understanding of your family history and uh, how you are working to uh, make the country better as a result. Appreciate your time. How often was Plessy cited as people challenged Jim Crow laws in the early part of the 20th century? What, were the, what was the legal standing and, and really its impact over uh, time in the early part of the 20th century? Well, 
in the very beginning of the early 20th century, there remained a number of cases um, in the South uh, that involved uh, jury service and voting. Uh, a few of these cases, 1901, 1903, etc., uh, those weren't successful um, for African Americans. And there was a long, dry spell with respect to using the 14th Amendment um, for its original purposes, that is, protecting African Americans. Um, so uh, in 1917, there was a case uh, that came out of um, the city of Louisville involving housing segregation. Um, ironically, or maybe not ironically, the plaintiff there was white and he was trying to sell his home to an African-American man. Um, and he, um, he prevailed in his challenge uh, uh, on, to the city, uh, saying that they were discriminating. And so he prevailed under 14th Amendment. For the most part, uh, the 14th Amendment didn't have a whole lot of force until um, the plan that the NAACP and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, devised when they began to challenge separate but equal um, and began to challenge it using the fact that we alluded to before, the railroads didn't like uh, segregation in Plessy because it cost too much. Well, separate but equal education, particularly in higher education where they first began uh, to challenge segregation was tremendously expensive. It was never meant to be equal. It wasn't going to be equal. And so strategically they began there, but that wasn't until the 19, late 1930s and into the 40s that those cases began, and that was the road to Brown versus Board of Education. A comments on uh, Plessy's importance uh, to the law for the next several decades? So um, two things. One, in, in a place like California, where they barred segregation of African Americans in their constitution starting around 1880, they mandated segregation of Asian Americans. Um, in, in southern Texas, they certainly mandated segregation of Latinos. But I think it's a mistake to think that that somehow was inspired by Plessy. Um, segregation laws were adopted before Plessy. In California, as I said, it was 15 years before Plessy that they started segregating Asians into separate schools. So I, I don't think it was necessary for people who were inclined to adopt segregation to have the Plessy decision, but certainly other races and ethnic groups were segregated. In California, it was much more important to people to discriminate and segregate against Asians. Asians were ten, uh, 10 times as populous in California as African-Americans were in the mid-19th century. So it was Asians that they were mostly concerned about, and they certainly segregated them in separate schools. Ted Shaw is at the University of North Carolina. He is the head of the Center for Civil Rights there, an expert in 14th Amendment and uh, civil rights law. Mike Klarman teaches at Harvard, author of the book From Jim Crow to Civil Rights, the Supreme Court and the Struggle for Racial Equality, constitutional historian, and legal scholar, and we thank both of you for being here with us to understand this 1896 case of Plessy versus Ferguson. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.